Hi. Great to have. Great to be back. So. <laughs> You, you get another record, so you were my first female guest. Now you're my first out-of-Rochester guest, out-of-state guest, all the way from Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah, we moved since the last time I was on the podcast, which I guess was in July, because um, we moved in August. Time Time isn't is just, a thing anymore. Yeah. Like, it's the whole Thursday, month of April. I think. Yeah. The whole month of April didn't exist. May sort of existed. And then we, like, so we moved because my husband got a new job. So once he got the job offer in June, I was like, okay, time is existing because now we have a timeline for moving. (laughs) But now that we're here, it's like, yeah, time doesn't exist anymore. (laughs) No, time is totally not a thing anymore. It's so great. Yeah. I don't know what day of the week it is most days. It's just, is it a daycare day or not a daycare day? Yeah. So that is my sole measure of time. Mm. Yeah, it's been interesting. I am currently searching for a new job because I don't have a job. Technically, I'm unemployed. feels very weird to say. So I've been, like, fumbling around trying to give myself structure in the day. Like, um... When we were working from home at my previous job, um, I had asked for, like, a daily check-in, check-out. Because, like, you know, we were working from home. And that, those, like, small 15-minute, like, you know, little stand-up meetings or whatever, did so much to just, like, help put me in the right mindset and, you know, structure. So I'm like, oh, does anybody care what time I wake up? Go to bed? (laughs) Or do anything so no. that that also like you at least yeah you have daycare i have like nothing i don't know but it's it's i don't know the freedom is like scary and nice because or, or, like like i'm starting to like embrace the challenge you'd be like wow i can do whatever i want so like teenage me was like this is great stand up all night and now i'm like okay adult me let's take ownership of this freedom, you know? So you would say there's some uncomfortability and freedom now. Cause you're like, what do I do with this? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. A hundred percent. Yeah. I, uh, so a while ago I stopped, uh, having screens on after nine o'clock at night. I was only reading books and stuff. And then the past few nights, uh, I, w- had screens on i started watching horror movies because it's october and you know i started in early september i've watched uh (laughs) babysitter queen bee and the lighthouse so far um okay i think the lighthouse is the only one i know of those but yeah yeah one's a netflix exclusive and it's an intentionally bad horror movie like it, it's oh. a, it's a horror comedy so like yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. funny through most of it and like the next day i he's like you look like you didn't sleep at all and i'm like yeah i gotta stop doing screens at night so yeah screens had to go away again yeah it's yeah it's interesting i um 
I think, I don't know if I talked about this last time, but on my Pixel phone, I have digital well-being. So I like set timers for the apps that have news feeds like Twitter um, or trying to buy a house. So I obviously have real estate apps and that, those also have news feeds, like, which is do not buy a house with a house app. It's like soul crushing how quickly <laughs> houses sell. But if you're not looking, you don't know that. If you're not looking at the app, you're not you don't know that. So, yeah. Um, so that's that's one thing I've tried to implement. And then it's like, oh, five minutes. You have five minutes left, and I'm like, or I have more than five minutes. And like, it, yep. So I have those timer and Reddit, and I uh, watched the debates live, <laughs> and right before the debate, I only have a thirty minute timer on Twitter. Twitter was like your time is up. And I'm like, no time limit. Like, I gotta be live tweeting and watching Twitter while this shit show happens, so. Yeah. Yeah. The other, yeah, the other workaround, other than increasing the timers, is, like, using it in my web browser, um, using Twitter or the real estate apps um, in the web browser. But, I don't know, it is interesting, like you said, like no screens. So it's like, okay, for like TV, for Netflix, for like the computer, somehow like even just having the digital timers on my phone, like is making me more aware of when I'm using all screens, right? So, and I'm like, oh, I wish like Netflix had a timer. I'm like, am I really such a child about this that I have to have a timer or can I like enforce a timer on myself? No, so. you need an app to do it for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ah, um, so you brought the topic today. So what'd you bring for ah, me? Well, so I, I sent you something and it evolved a little bit from there. But speaking of Netflix, I've been, um, I've been enjoying what Netflix has been curating for recommendations. Uh, my, my favorite type of TV show on Netflix to watch is like comedy shows that are very like mm, I want to say emotionally intelligent but it's more about like this the characters working together to better themselves right and I've noticed a lot of those shows um like so some of the ones I'm watching right now are The Unbreakable, Kimmy Schmidt, um, The Good Place, um, Glow which is a Netflix original <laughs> um I, I think that has a new season coming out um, soon. So just like those kinds of, you know, um, like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is like another like kind of classic example, although I haven't watched it, but I watch all of the music videos on YouTube. So I'm, I don't know. I was just like, these TV shows are like relatively modern, like since the 2010s. So I was trying to think like what... I thought I would like try to do some research, like what is the origin of that or what impact has that had for like society. But um, so I, I was like, well, you know, golden age of TV, like that's a thing, right? Maybe, maybe these shows fit into like that, which they do. They are on the official Wikipedia list for the golden age of TV, but there's a lot of other shows too, like the West Wing. So that, that really starts in the 2000s, like way before. So then I um I ended up kind of finding um did you there was okay I'm gonna close this out sorry 
do, do, do. I have some messaging apps open, so I don't know <laughs> if you get the little pings. So, all right, here's where the screen sharing comes in. So I think I Googled like emotionally intelligent TV and there was actually a study done that, um, uh, let's see, where was it? Watching TV can boost emotional intelligence. Hmm. And so I was like, wow, this is so cool. Can you, am I sharing screen? What? It's uh, black right now. Okay. Is it, there it is. Okay. There it is. So this was pretty cool. Um, so this study was done in 2015. So before some of these shows came out and they point the shows that I was watching, but they point to like um, the West Wing, um, Mad Men. And so it was kind of follow-up work to a study that, um, that, that first showed that you can boost your theory of mind or the ability to interpret the mental states and emotions of others um, by reading literature, right? So that was done in 2013 by this group of people, David Komorkid and Emmanuel Castano from the New School for Social Research. The New School is apparently this like high-fangled place in New York City. I've heard it like mentioned a few times, but Anyway, so, like, that was pretty cool, right? Like, theory of mind, like, is, you know, it's like a, you can, you can grow your theory of mind, right? You can improve, you know, your relationship to others by reading books. And there, there's this sort of, like, um, like, by doing something, you know, offline, like, reading books. So, like, offline being you know, not communicating with somebody, right? You can go away, do something all on your own and translate it back to like your relationships and your interactions with people. So the first thing they showed here was that you can do that through literature. Um, and then the second thing, I think it was the same authors. Um, uh, let's see, now let me go back to this article. Um, no, it was, so it was a different group of people showed that you can do the same thing in quality television dramas. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, it said here that participants, um, they, they sort of, um, had college students watch Mad Men or the West Wing as like the experimental group. And then the sort of non-experimental group was a documentary so sort of just you know um academic like content right not featuring a lot of faces or not featuring a lot of um, sort of interpersonal like relationships and then after they watched this content they took the reading the mind in the eyes test so that's like okay what does that mean um i, I went and took the test which we can go talk about but they found that after um, viewing these TV shows, you had like an increase in being able to read people's emotions just from like the eyes, like literally just like your eyebrows and like just under your eyes, like not even your nose, which is actually really hard. Like I went and tried it. Um, it's over here in this social intelligence lab in the wild site. Um, so, you know, uh, oh, here he is. Okay. Now I want to change screen share to PowerPoint. So I took this test. I didn't actually like the test that well. 
because I thought the photos they used were not of great quality. Um, and there was some, I felt like there was some bias. Um, oh, and that's my, okay, so social intelligence test. How well can you read emotions of others just by looking at their eyes? Find out and compare yourself to others, which is Ooh. dumb. But yeah, it was interesting. It was hard. Like there was 37 um, images and like by like the 15th one, like halfway through, I was like, man, like I feel like drained, like emotionally <laughs> from trying to like constantly because you're given one picture and then you get four emotions and you try to like guess which emotion is the most represented here. But they were like really complex emotions. So that was also one of my criticisms. Anyway, this kind of like went down somewhat of like a rabbit hole. So I don't know. What do you think? So it makes me think. Uh, so I really like the work of Joseph Campbell, who writes about mythology. Um, mm -hmm. And it makes me think, you know, how he talks about storytelling and myth and how humans learn more through stories than we do through real experiences sometimes. But because stories give sensationalized yeah. versions of real experiences. Yeah. And I mean, is TV not just our next step in mythology? And for a while, I mean, movies were great and TV was subpar, but now we're definitely in the age where TV is absolutely amazing and some movies are subpar. Um, and it's more TV probably that's good than movies that are good. And the movies that are big are now these blockbusters, which don't hold much content. I mean, I know I mentioned The Lighthouse earlier, and that's a horror movie, and it's a psychological thriller. And I don't think it had a big box office, but it was a very intense mm -hmm. movie. It left me feeling emotionally mm -hmm. drained and odd because, first of all, mm -hmm. it's in black and white. It's a period piece. It's about two lighthouse workers who have a mental breakdown when the ship doesn't come to pick them up. It's mm -hmm. shot in one and one ninth scale, which is mm -hmm. not a scale movies are shot in. So that mm -hmm. already is off. So when they zoom in yeah. on faces, the face takes up the entire screen. And then Ooh. there is, a, th there was a whole bunch of sound stuff that happened in it too. Like, uh, so I didn't know this, but lighthouses have like fog horns that play. Mm -hmm. So not only you see, but you hear and almost the entire movie, every 30 seconds, the foghorn is Ooh. coming in in the background. And then there's one part where one of the characters having a mental rave. And when he's not speaking, they almost cut the audio. So there's no, oh. like, there's the background sound of the storm happening. And you can hear that when he's talking and he stops speaking and the audio drops. And then he starts speaking and the audio comes back in. And mm -hmm. it really, I mean, th those types of movies don't do well, but I feel like you get those a lot more TV being challenging like that. Yeah. You're breaking bads, uh, Lovecraft County mm -hmm. right now. Uh, they mm -hmm. tend to tell challenging stories. So I could mm -hmm. see why when seeing over sensationalized emotional drama, it helps mm -hmm. you recognize emotions better. I mean, mm -hmm. we're rewatching The Good Place too, and I'm on a yeah. philosophy kick because of it. So yeah, 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 yeah. I was um so happy. 
really looking forward to the last season, season four, dropping on Netflix. So I'm on episode 12 of 13. There's two left. I'm trying, I won't give anything away, but I really, I've also noticed how, like, there's 13 episodes per season of, like, you know, the 23-minute, 30-minute, if there was, you know, um, if there was commercials, um, like, clips. And so, meanwhile, like, JJ and I, for, like, together time are watching a series from the 1990s 80s 90s it's kind of a sci-fi series called uh highlander it's about an, it. you know a mortal like and so that formula of tv show right there's 23 episodes per series per season and it's like a full hour-long drama so really it's like it's it is interesting because like comparing the good place and highlander 13 episodes versus 23 episodes like four times more airtime for the highlander because of the length of season and the length per episode but i still feel like the character development is happens um within the same limited amount of episodes as the good place right so the good place all of the character development is like condensed, right? Because you're just, it's just like always something is happening. So it's like there's like three episode arcs for both of them, right? But for Highlander, between those three episode arcs is just so much filler, right? Like, so. Monster of the Week episodes. Yeah, exactly. Supernatural uses it, X Files uses it, because out of the 26 episodes, maybe only. 10 to 13 of those actually fall into the big bad the Mm -hmm. overarching storyline so you get monster of the week episodes like oh we're gonna go uh there's a this is actually from supernatural there Mm -hmm. is a town that is obsessed with santa and kids are disappearing and so we're gonna go investigate that and it has nothing to do with the overarching story it's a filler episode it's the Dragon Ball Z multiple episodes of running on Mm -hmm. in heaven episodes. So, yeah, and those like really, it's interesting because it's like Highlander was never designed to be like a streaming show, right? But I feel like The Good Place, even though it aired like on television networks, was like designed like you can stream it. And it's really fulfilling, right? Because there's no filler episodes, and like the care, it feels like the characters are always like slowly evolving, right? Where it's like you know, monster of the week, like maybe you learn some backstory details, but there's not a lot of world building. There's not a lot of character development. Um, maybe in the big bad like story arcs, like that's when you know the character confronts the big bad. Maybe they grow as a character. Maybe they don't. You know, it's like. It's just not as fulfilling anymore, you know? No, it's, and it's a different way of storytelling. And I think Mm -hmm. on top of that, our streaming culture has changed the way stories need to be told. Yes. Um, I actually was mentioning this to someone the other week. I'm watching Lovecraft County and Mm -hmm. it's a weekly show. It did not drop the entire thing right up front. And I kind of forgot how much i enjoy that experience but yet it's also only 10 episodes or 11 episodes something like that so every episode 
is progressing the story forward. There's no mm-hmm. monster of the week filler episodes. And I mean, I used to be a huge supernatural fan, but that had a ton of monster of the week episodes. Mm-hmm. So I almost wonder if you could probably some TV, some shows would be better suited to this than others. But if you could, like, for those Monster of the Weeks, like, basically create a, a re-edited version of the series that, like, just takes out all those, right? Oh, I'm sure they exist. Like, watch yeah. Season 1, Episode 1, 7, 8, 9, 15, and 22, yeah. and you have the story arc of the season. So, mm-hmm. I'm sure oh. it exists. That would actually be really fun, like, as, like, a review of, you know, like, Babylon 5 or a review of Andromeda, right? To just, like, sit down. Because people do this all the time with, like, Star Wars, right? Like, here's my recommended viewing order versus, like, another recommended viewing order. And it's kind of fun to, like, play around with that stuff. But, like, yeah, you could do that with the TV series, too, for sure. And we all know Star Wars, the viewing order is <laughs> 4, 5, 1, 2, 3, 6, Seven, eight, and let's forget nine happened. Yes. Yeah. I so. wonder how many people have that as a pin. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. yeah. So what you mentioned early on about like TV changing in the 2000s, it made me think about this documentary I watched. Um, and it was actually about horror movies. There's a documentary called Nightmare in Red, White, and Blue. And it was very much about how right around the time Bush took office um, in 2000 and on horror movies changed and how horror movies are always kind of represent representative of the culture um, Mm -hmm. and how they change to swing to cultural norms. And they talked about the zombie craze kind of being like this idea in the 60s of not understanding the other like both the super hippies thought the conservative were these undead brain dead creatures Mm -hmm. that were coming after them in their culture so that's where zombies came from and it's Mm. i made me think of the same thing with tv which is tv changing to accompany our culture our streaming culture our current situations and everything like the good place is very much about philosophy and all that and you know Mm -hmm. what it means to live a good life so that made me think of that too Mm -hmm. i will say okay this is a slight spoiler but it really doesn't have much to do with the overall story um one of the episodes in season four we see chidi have a girlfriend who's a theoretical physicist and she's like they have this little debate about like is philosophy more useful for daily life or is physics like does physics have you know the ultimate answers because you're observing reality versus philosophy you're kind of trapped in your mind you're trapped in this sort of like um sort of academic headspace the whole time right and it was really interesting to see that on TV because I have had that debate with myself, right? Like I took some philosophy courses along with my physics degree in undergrad. And like, it was so, it was just really interesting um, to sort of, you know, confront that question. 
Um, you know, because for me, like physics is the fundamental, right? Like chemistry is applied physics. Um, biology is applied chemistry. You know, philosophy is applied biology. You can kind of build up from physics, which is not to say the other sciences aren't useful. They're 100% way useful. We need all science. But so some people might say, well, physics is just applied math. It's like, yeah, but like math is sort of like philosophy in that like you can just sit on paper all day right and you're never you never have to actually confront reality you never have to confront the screen in front of you and talk about how it's powered by electricity and you know transistors and modern computer hardware and all these things right that represent things i can actually touch so physics to me is that last science that sort of fundamental here is what i'm touching you know science Wikipedia would disagree with you. Philosophy Uh-oh. is the end of everything. Have you ever heard this? Go on. So if you go on Wikipedia and just open an article at some point and just every time there's a link in the article, follow the first link in the article, it will always end at the philosophy article. Okay, how many steps do you have to take before you get to philosophy? It depends on the article. Some it's only a couple and some it's quite a bit. But it all So pretty much all of Wikipedia ends at the philosophy article at some point. That's... But... Okay, how many of those pass through physics first? I'm not saying that they don't pass through physics. I'm just saying it always ends at the philosophy article. My point is not that physics is the end. My point is that physics is the most useful end point. You could go further. You could go more fundamental in physics, but as we see in Chidi, is it really useful or do you just get stuck in that mind space without it's it's really easy to just sit around and like discuss the the trolley problem all day. But you but like is that useful to anybody, right? To me, what I've learned recently is Academic problems aren't that useful. Human connection, right? Communicating, talking, like having experiences is sometimes more useful than having these academic discussions. So that's why I would argue physics keeps that relationship with experiences, right? We're ex- how do we experience the world? And, and you're sort of not... You're less trapped in in that um, world of discussion and debate. That yes, I see your point. I agree, but is it useful? I'm not saying that it is, but I mean, would physics have ever come without philosophy? The question of why and how. That is where everything starts. It is the basis. I don't know. It makes me think I watched a, a movie. It was pretty bad. I want to be very clear <laughs> okay. about this. But the concept was interesting. It was called the Mandela effect. And uh, I'm taking it. You know what the Mandela effect is? So I think I've seen this in a YouTube video. Uh, I think... I think the angry video game nerd may have done an episode on the Mandala effect, which, so my, before my understanding or my memory of it would be that I have a memory of something like Nelson Mandela is dead Mm -hmm. that is not 
like and many people have this same shared memory that is not actually true. Yes. Yes, exactly. Okay. Uh, so, you know, I, I've called it the Berenstein Bears effect, that Berenstein was spelled Berenstein for me when I was a kid, and now it's spelled differently. Um, so the movie was completely based off this effect. So it starts with uh, a guy and his wife, and they're at the beach, and their child goes out into the ocean and passes away. And he then slowly starts to notice things, like... Bernstein spelled differently on her book. The Monopoly Man doesn't have a monocle anymore. Where he, in his world, it used to have a monocle. A picture he took with his family was taken in the wrong place now, and he just starts to notice these little tiny things, and it slowly proceeds on and on and on, and it gets to the point where I think it's a physicist that he meets with, and the physicist is uh, pitching uh, simulation theory that our entire world is mm. a simulation. And um, it, the physicist ends up saying, well, the simulation has been stopping me from showing that it's a simulation because every time I do something now, the simulation has made my life worse and worse. Mm -hmm. So what ends up happening is the guy starts trying to fight the simulation and the simulation brings his kid back to life. So in this movie, the simulation is a real thing. And then his wife starts to have a mental breakdown because she knows that her daughter should be dead. So Mm -hmm. one of the things the physicist said to him is we can't prove it's a simulation, but he pitched the idea that like the world's only rendering what people are looking at to save Mm -hmm. computing power. So Mm -hmm. there's a whole bunch of the world that isn't being rendered right now because someone's not looking if a tree falls in a forest, does it really make a sound? Yeah, no, exactly. because, yeah, okay. Yeah, they, they bring up that. So they use your favorite word, quantum. There, oh there is a quantum computer in a lab at the university. And here's where it's going to get scientifically absolutely insane. So the guy whose daughter died is a video game developer. And okay. the professor built the quantum computer. And he's like, if we could make a computer, program to run on the quantum computer that was looking everywhere in the world at the same time the simulation would have to render the entire world the entire time Mm -hmm. which would overload the Mm -hmm. simulation Mm -hmm. they don't really give a clear description of how they're doing this like if the quantum computers hacked into the entire camera network of the world or anything like this but pretty much what ends up happening he, he writes the program runs it the simulation glitches out, the world goes black, and reboots from the last save point, which is when his daughter died, and his daughter doesn't die in this mm-hmm. rendition because the simulation knows that that mm-hmm. will cause the simulation to crash. Mm-hmm. Not a great movie, but definitely interesting theories presented in it. Yeah. I was actually thinking about this recently. I've never been a big fan of like simulation theory. It kind of ties into many. I feel like people use like quantum, the quantum interpretation of like many worlds theory to kind of support simulation theory. And I also find many worlds theory to be like, I don't know, cop out. Like 
there's some interesting sci-fi shows that have episodes like um, Stargate has explored like many worlds hypothesis, right? Where you have like alternate realities, right? Like bump, that bump into each other and crossover, right? So sliders, those... the entire TV show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like it makes for good storytelling, right? And I guess that's what I feel like it is in physics. Like it's a good story that physics can tell to itself that says, here's our way out of this problem, but it's not actually testable, which is my one, number one problem with it. There's no way we can, we currently have a method to like test if, you know, this hypothesis of physics is um, accurate or not. So that's my main problem with it. But I was thinking, going back to simulation theory, I was like, you know, I guess I kind of have the same feeling about it that I have about most religion, which is that if it helps you, if it helps reduce your anxiety, or if it if it if it works for you, that's fine. Right? Like what does it what is the what is the impact? What is the what is it gonna change about my day-to-day life if simulation theory is true or not? You Ooh, know? So you want to get into the philosophy of this and what's the point? <laughs> so But I mean that's the thing about any philosophy though, right? Is like how is it going to change my actions? That is a good question. And in some cases, uh, like Cheaty from The Good Place, it doesn't. It morally caps him because he cannot make a decision mm-hmm. due to the philosophy of it. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we could, we, could have a, we could have a whole other episode on simulation theory. I would... I would listen to arguments about it. I would entertain it, but I think, I guess my my view on it overall is that there are a lot of people our age, myself included, who maybe grew up in a religious household, maybe didn't, but kind of reject the notion of modern religion as like an institution or, you know, it's like, what does it do for me? But there is still a need for storytelling for ourselves that goes unfulfilled. And so a kind of science belief in science, which I disagree with, you don't believe in science, you trust science. Um, So science and sort of, so simulation theory to me is atheistic or agnostic people fulfilling their need for storytelling for a higher being. So this actually, and I'm probably going to get this quote a little bit off, but Joseph Campbell in his, uh, Mm -hmm. um, Oh God, I just listened to it. I think it's called like the art of mythology or something. It's a five part series where he's getting interviewed by Bill Moyer. And there's a part where he's talking and this is in the Mm eighties about pretty much the moral bankruptcy of uh, modern culture. And he says it's because we don't have myths to live by. Myths were codes that told you Mm -hmm. how to live. And we no longer have that. Um, And I think it's – I personally don't think humans can outgrow the need to have some sort of myth to live by. Even – atheist believing in the simulation theory i mean mm-hmm. elon musk is a huge simulation theory guy apparently and he wants yeah. to put a brain chip in your brain so take that for what you will you know once you are getting implanted with musk thoughts all the time um <laughs> but, trademark <laughs> yeah, musk thoughts uh, he uh you know it's 
we have this overarching need for something to be bigger than us. And I, it, to me, it's an interesting, I, I'm going to bring a little bit, I guess, of philosophy into it, is human, humans want to be important. And if we can't be important, we need to explain off why we're not important. You know, originally we were important. The earth was the center of the universe. Everything mm -hmm. revolved around us. Well, then we are important because we are made in God's image. And so we are mm -hmm. like God himself, mm -hmm. herself. Um, and then that was disproven. So now it's mm -hmm. not that we're okay. So it's, it's an unprovable. It's an unprovable fact. Like, and it's not a fact. It's an unprovable idea. It's an unprovable idea. Yes. Some people have moved past that. Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, if there are gods, I doubt we were made in their image, in my personal belief. Um, but, again, philosophy. Definitely mm -hmm. philosophy. And then, so now mm -hmm. we've got the simulation theory that gives us a different level of importance in that mm -hmm. we're potentially a simulation to test if something's done this way will it work mm -hmm. and we serve some sort of greater purpose and it's it's a yeah. drive of humanity i feel like and i i'm listening to this semi-scientific semi uh philosophy book uh called um till the end of time by uh brian green i think is his name yeah brian mm. green um You've heard of him, I take it. Uh, he's on the Michio Kaku spectrum of physicists who like to talk to the public who water down and woo-woo physicist ideas. But go yeah, on. I, I definitely don't think a lot of his ideas are super uh, physicist. Um, they're more philosophical science to me. Um, mm -hmm. So like the current chapter I'm in, uh, actually reminded me of something from Neil deGrasse Tyson's current Cosmos series where he's talking mm -hmm. about the uh, time scale of the universe. But he, instead of using a calendar, he uses floors on a building. And he's yeah. like, so if it takes you five minutes to get from floor one to floor two, the first, you know, we didn't appear till floor 22. And then we only mm -hmm. exist like most likely till floor 24 and then mm -hmm. by floor 50 the sun dies out and so he does all that and then he also mm -hmm. talked about a version of free will that's pretty much that we have thought free will but we don't have atomic free will that our atoms are pretty much on a flow of motion already and we don't control our own atoms at the atomic level. So it was a very interesting uh, concept. That's so, that's just, uh, <laughs> there's so much wrong with that. What I think is interesting, what I think happens in like, so yes, yeah, so Brian Greene is a physicist. He is a theoretical physicist, mathematician, and he studies string theory. So I feel like string theory is, trying to string theory is operating at the foundations of physics like very like that literal intersection between physics and philosophy right physics and math 
Like you have to create new math to describe what you think is happening in physics, right? And that does borrow sometimes from like philosophy. So it makes sense of like trying to talk about these things. But like my problem with this is like the physicists who tend to work in these fields see themselves as all important to physics. And especially when they go and have like some public persona, some, you know, writing sort of popular books or having TV shows, they take that arrogance with them. And so like the entire idea of like, like consciousness, to me, consciousness is an emergent property, right? So emergent properties are things where like an individual atom does not connect, conduct electricity, right? It takes a group of atoms for electricity to become even a property that can be accurately described about the system, right? So like, I think that's kind of what they're getting at, but like the way that it was, that like talk about it, like that's what I mean by like watering down and like woo woo, it just like, I don't know, it takes away from like maybe the, the, the depth of like what is happening in that physics. So I don't know. It's just, it's frustrating me. Good ideas, good things to talk about, but like, I don't know. They got to dumb it down for the people like me who want to look at it philosophically and not with the math behind it. But, you know, there's philosophical concepts stuck within mathematics and science. I'm chewing on a cookie shell. <laughs> you muted Hold yourself. on a sec. <laughs> I shall use this opportunity of silence to control the whole conversation. Make myself self-important. <laughs> um, oh. Okay. Now I'm... Am I unmuted? You are unmuted. Okay. So... I agree. There is some, there's philosophy underlying math. Um, You have to be sort of careful though, right? Like y equals mx plus b algebra. What's the philosophy behind algebra and the equation of a line? I mean, we could get into some craziness there about how, like, well, those laws only apply in the specific theory of the universe. So now let's talk about other theories of the universe where that equals a circle. And it I'm not saying that is good philosophy. I'm not even saying that all philosophy, all philosophy is not valid. And okay. there's a lot of conflicts in philosophy. Yeah. So I guess I'm just bringing at it of the thought process behind it that, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, what was it? There was something else I was reading recently that said, you know, all of us knew that things fell down. Like if I put something in the air right now, it will fall to the earth. It took 7,000 years of civilization for 
someone to think, why do things fall down and start to actually explore it? And I guess I challenge that at the philosophical mind of trying to understand why. And science is the base root to why things happen, the mathematics to why things happen, where philosophy is the thoughts that of why things happen. And I, I don't know if there's a mathematics that could explain thought. Like, there, people are trying to map the brain right now and understand thought, but mm-hmm. I don't know if that exists. So, it's interesting. My sister is a neuroscientist. I asked her one time, um, and the answer is no. Like, you can't... Like, it is actually really frustrating. We have equations that describe how electrons flow in an electrical circuit, right? But so some models of the brain model the connectivity of neurons as circuits, right? Because our brains have electrons. All of our body has electrons. Um, the neurons can be thought of as electrical circuits in some simplified manner. But like, how would you like create an equation to describe the network flow of the electrons and how does that relate to thought? And it's, it's really difficult. Um, there's some, the area of there's, there's the increasingly, um, people are relying on computation. So rather than saying, I'm going to write down an equation and test that equation, it's like, okay, let's run a simulation, right? Let's set up a model. Let's run that model on a supercomputer and see if the results match the experiment. And so that computational side of things, computational biology, computational neuroscientist science is as close, in my understanding, as close as those fields will ever get to having a fundamental equation to describe the brain. And in some way, like going back to this um, idea of like emergent properties. So Philip, I think it was Philip Anderson, who was um, a, a, a physicist. He discovered, I think it was Joseph. No, um, uh, let me just, Philip Anderson was, um, he was involved in, Superconduct. Let's see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, Philip Anderson. He actually passed away this March. I yeah. Um, he wrote about some condensed matter phenomenon, like anti, like ferromagnetism. So some stuff about magnetism, um, high temperature superconductivity. His models in condensed matter physics actually gave us math that was translated over to particle physics and kind of gave us the Higgs boson. So some, so in some, so it's really interesting, like physics drama, but, um, Philip Anderson wrote about this concept of emergent phenomena. So, um, that's, you know, kind of where biology, right? If when I say biology is applied chemistry, that's what I mean is like, once you put enough chemicals together, they start not acting like chemicals. You have new vocabulary to describe them. And so new properties emerge as you increase the complexity of systems. And in increasing the complexity, you lose the ability to describe it mathematically is kind of, you know, what happens. 
so to me, this gets to an interesting concept looking at things almost in an anthropological view of humanity mm-hmm. of philosophy and myth is our way of explaining the unexplainable. And as science has evolved, we've been able to explain the, what we considered unexplainable for the longest time, like why weather happens, why it gets hot and cold. Like we had myths that explained that like, well, Hades took someone, uh, took a goddess as a wife, and she has to Mm -hmm. live in the underworld, and when she lives in the underworld, it gets cold, but then she's allowed to come back to Mount Olympus, and I think the reason that a lot of philosophy and mythology still exists today is because we still have things science can't explain, like the workings of the brain and stuff, and I just all relates... I want to say that this started out as a thing talking about TV shows. So just keep that in <laughs> mind, listeners. We started with TV shows and ended up here. So, Yeah. I mean, we definitely had this wandering conversation. It was really, um, I think you and I have a lot of shared interest around these things, so I'm not surprised by how it wandered. So I didn't know, I, I was, yeah, we're kind of coming up on an hour. I don't know if there was anything any topics what's the plan from from here are we gonna oh, you, you want a plan i don't have yeah. a plan oh, uh okay. usually we end this with conspiracy corner but i think we had a lot of conspiracies lately but I, i'll give you a conspiracy one that will probably drive you okay. absolutely insane and it's from the oh, movie no. the uh mandela effect we started splitting the world in multiple when we turned on the Large Hadron Collider and created a multiverse. There's a fun one for you that I can just already see is just driving you just a little insane. If the multiverse theory of physics, which is, again, an interpretation of quantum physics, quantum physics has a lot of evidence to show that it's correct, but we sometimes struggle with understanding what it means in a larger picture. So multiverse is one sort of explanation. If it is correct, then the multiverse would have been around since before the LHC turned on. So but what you don't understand is it was always there, but then we tore a fabric in reality when we crashed those things together at high speeds. I'm not supporting I mean, this. I'm just playing devil's advocate. So, I again, I haven't put much thought into the multiverse. There could be an argument about how the multiverse is constructed or when universes split. Um, I, I don't know the rules. I don't know. Like, And again, that's like where even within multiverse theory, there's lots of different rules for like when universes split and when they don't. So in some version of multiverse theory, I could see a reason that turning on the LHC increases the rate of, um, of, of multiverse splitting, right? Because, but the thing is, um, the Large Hadron Collider was not the first particle accelerator. So again, their first particle accelerators were... 
probably the 1940s, 1950s. I think Enrico Fermi had one of the first particle accelerators. It was built under the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign uh, football field. Ooh. So they were doing particle physics underneath football field. Um, There's a concept for a comic book. The collider goes off during a football game and one of the football players gets superpowers because of it. There we go. Yeah. Perfect. Um, So if, if that was, if particle um, in this person's conspiracy theory, again, turning on the LHC may have increased the rate of multiverse generation, but it was not the first particle accelerator. So it would not be the first time in human history that we would have had this phenomena of accelerating the rate of multiverse splitting. So, yeah. Okay. It's actually got probably a little bit of a thought process to it. Cause that was one that I just threw off the top of my head based on the movie. Okay. All right. Okay. So on the way to Lake Placid, me and Emmy listened to a podcast radio lab. Um, and it was an episode called Dinopocalypse and it was about how the dinosaurs died off. And it was a, a relatively newer theory of the dinosaurs dying off. So there's the classical theory, the meteor crashed into the earth, put so much dust into the air, the earth slowly warmed up, the dinosaurs died off, the creatures that were still around, like mouse and stuff, they evolved and then became what we have today because the dinosaurs died off. Well, this theory presents that things happened completely different, that mm-hmm. the meteor crashed into earth created so much heat the atmosphere got up to i think it was like 700 degrees celsius or something and pretty much boiled all life on earth and within three hours of the meteor crashing all life on surface earth died off and there's actually a good amount of evidence that this might have actually been how things happen so this led to a conversation with me and emmy after listening to the podcast of me going So what this is presenting is life had to restart on Earth. Not completely. There was probably microbiotic life that lived deep in the ocean that survived it. But nothing on the surface of the Earth would have lived in the conditions that you set out. So life restarted. Mm -hmm. What is the ramifications that life has restarted on Earth once before? At least... At least once before, let's say. Well, I mean, so dinosaurs died off multiple times, first of all. There have been multiple mass extinction events throughout the geological record. Um, You know, there's like the Jurassic period, there's the Paleozoic period. So in some sense, like, what do you, like, the most dramatic version of what you're saying is that life was reduced to micro micro microbial like small maybe single-celled organisms um that would be the most dramatic less dramatic versions of that would be that again mass extinction events take the biodiversity of the earth way down right so if your biodiversity score whatever that is however that is calculated was 1 million and it's reduced down to 1,000, you still have maybe some large mammals, you still have, you know, things of varying sizes, of varying um, complexity, but there's just not as much diversity. 
that also has a big impact, right? Because you're just changing the trajectory of available, you know, genomic material to go forward and propagate. So that's a really interesting question. I think there's a lot to think about, um, you know, as far as the implications. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I remember I asked I asked one of my one of my grad school friends. Um, he had he was a physics major. We were actually working in the lab in the same same research group. But he had started out in paleogeology, where you use um, some properties of rocks, like magnetism, for example. Um, to show how the magnetic field of the Earth has changed over really long ge geological timescales. And so he had gone out and done some like digging and rocks and stuff. And I was like, you know, what would be the implication if, if life had evolved before, right? Could ancient civilizations, right, that we have, you know, no record of maybe in these eras, right, before the dinosaurs. Like, what if another, like, Aztec civilization had lived way prehistoric to any of our records, right? Like, how would we know if they did or didn't? Because maybe the surface of the Earth has been coded so many times since then, we're not either going back in geologic record far enough, or all of their structures, all of their complexity has been sort of biodegraded down into, you know, principal elemental materials. So they're not recognizable as having, you know, human construction. So think about that. Yeah. I, <laughs> I highly recommend listening to that episode of Radio Lab. Yeah. Um, if you can watch it, there was actually, so we listened to it, but there was a PowerPoint that went oh, with it and yeah. we didn't get to see yeah. the video portion of it. Um, yeah. So yeah, that that's think about that people. Think about what it means if life has died off once before and you know, we're mate we're on the matrix. We're on the sixth incarnation of life here. <laughs> so Sure. Uh well it was fun meeting with you digitally since you're, you yeah. know, like twenty four hours driving away now. <laughs> yes. Um I think we did it in two days or two or three days, you know, on the road, um, could do it in all in one go if, if one wanted to, I bet. Um, but yeah. Okay. Well, oh. I always end with a quote and, okay. uh, I, I pick something from the good place. Season two, episode 12. If this isn't a test, then it's something way worse. A choice that we have to make. <laughs> Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Bye. Bye. He speaks podcast this.